Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. March is the month many have anxiously been waiting for in Germany, the U.S., and beyond. Along with a much-anticipated easing of COVID-19 restrictions on shopping, dining, and more, there's a fervent hope that we are finally emerging from a coronavirus pandemic that has enveloped the world for more than two years. Common Ground's Abigail Meginson, who is based in Dusseldorf, got a taste there of what people are saying about lifting the restrictions. There was a lot of uh, cause for concern for the last two years. I can really see where the fear was, but I think now it's long overdue we open up because I see my my friends, colleagues in Sweden, Denmark, UK, seems to be life returning to normal. So I think it's about time uh, we also do that. So you're looking forward to yeah. quote-unquote Freedom Day. Is that Freedom Day for you? What is your opinion on March 20th? I mean, I hope it's uh, the Freedom Day as I see that they're still not decided. Uh, they're going back and forth. My wife works in, in a school and so she sees every day that there are lots of kids that who are being quarantined, also her colleagues, but I mean, doesn't seem to be that serious. So I'm really looking forward to Freedom Day. Freedom Day would be just return to normalcy, going to have uh, dinner somewhere without having to show all the papers and, and so on. So just the normal things that we enjoyed before the quarantine started. I think it's okay to lift them because we see that despite all of the measures, so many people still got infected. So I think they are probably not going to help that much anymore. I don't want to say anything wrong, but I can't see how we can get around everyone catching it. So that's just the way it is, although it's good it's being slowed down in hospitals. On one side, I think everyone is getting tired and wants to get back to a normal life. But at the same time, I think it's important that people are still a bit cautious and at least take regular tests and don't go out with too many different friend groups. It's hard to justify that a lot of things are still closed because a lot of small businesses depend on customers. And I guess it's really hard for them. So. Also, in the last years, we've seen that when it came to spring and summer, the numbers were better, so I guess it's fine, yeah. But is it too soon to be casting off masks and other restrictions and celebrating a post-COVID world? I will be talking about that today with Corinna Hennig, science editor and co-host of German public broadcaster NDR's weekly podcast, The Coronavirus Update and with journalist Kai Kupferschmidt, who writes for the magazine Science and who is in our Berlin studio with me. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hello, hi. Corinna, let's start by talking about the changes to the restrictions that are happening in Germany in two phases this month, in accordance with decisions reached at a federal summit last month. I mean, for example, you can go into stores now without having to show your Impfpass here in Berlin anyway, and I, I think it's the same in Hamburg? Yeah, it's the same in Hamburg, yeah, right. So what else is coming, though? On March 4th, there's supposed to be some more significant changes. I know in Berlin, for example, you're going to be able to go to a restaurant if you're unvaccinated for the first time in many, many months. Yeah, that's true. And I think this might be, for some people, this might be a big change. Um, for the majority who's already vaccinated, it's there won't be any difference. But for a lot of people, this would feel like having more freedom, although... In my opinion, freedom is maybe a word we, we could define in a different way. So 
And I think there are more events from March 4th on. So we have more people inside and outside, concerts and several other things. And we still have to wear masks on transit, I think, and also Mm -hmm. uh, in other circumstances like shopping, for example. So that it doesn't completely go away, but it definitely is a relaxation. So let me ask you, does it make sense to do this or is it too soon in your opinion? I think it's sort of a compromise we have to do in society because uh, things are changing a lot and people keep in mind that with the Omicron variant, um, things are getting a little better and then the weather is getting warmer and everything. But um, still it's difficult because we have to keep in mind that there are a lot of people who have a special risk still with Omicron because this is milder, but it's not a mild disease for everyone. So we still have families, we still have people who have comorbidities and what the society should do now is um, work out how we could protect them. But this is still a task we have to keep in mind for the next months, for the next autumn, for the next winter. So we should start thinking about this now while we have relaxations for the majority. Well, Kai, what do you say? Do you think that they're actually thinking of that far ahead or are federal and state governments in Germany bowing to public pressure rather than science at this point? I think, like Corinna said, it is uh, a compromise, right? You have to compromise between different interests and that includes the science as well, of course. I think in general, I have a problem with kind of calling it a freedom day because I really don't think, I I think it suggests something that the pandemic is completely over. It also suggests that, you know, this means everybody has more freedom when, like Corinna said, for some people, this actually might mean they have less freedom because it becomes more dangerous for people, for instance, where the vaccines don't work because they're immunocompromised. So there's a problem with the way that it's framed. I don't have a problem in general in the current situation with actually reducing um, the measures that we're implementing. I think you have to make sure that the public can stay behind these measures and you have to make sure that you adapt them to the level of disease really that we see. So I think these relaxations are the right thing to do right now. And I don't think it's about not planning far enough ahead because to be honest, it is so difficult to even predict what's going to happen anyway. The most important thing is that the politicians stay open for reintroducing certain restrictions and you know adapting to the situation. And that's the other reason why calling it a Freedom Day is kind of dangerous, because you have to always remember that you might have to go back. And yeah, you want to communicate that when you're communicating the relaxations, I think. I don't expect you to know what's happening in the U.S., but I'm sure you've heard about the fact that many states are relaxing. I mean, they're taking masks off. They're very rapidly removing the restrictions. They're certainly calling it freedom there, and there's a lot more pressure. And I'm just wondering if you see whether Germany in the EU are sort of feeling that effect, because obviously American tourists are very important to the German economy, to the European economy. Many businesses would like things to return to normal. And so I'm wondering if that American rush to removing any pandemic restrictions is having any kind of impact here in what you're hearing in the language from uh, the governments on all levels, federal and state. My personal sense is that very few people in Europe look to the U.S. as someone to follow in pandemic policy. I just don't think, as you heard from people on the street, people look to the UK, they look to Denmark, because we do understand, I think, that in some ways it is easier to compare ourselves to our neighbors' um, situations. Of course, there's still a lot of problems with that. I mean, especially we keep talking about Denmark and saying, well, you know, if Denmark can have these freedoms, we should be able to have them too. 
that depends on what you've done in terms of vaccination and also in terms of public communication, I think. So I don't see an effect from the US policy. To be honest, I have had the sense more often that that it was like a bad example where people felt like, okay, you know, we don't want to be the US, so let's make sure that maybe we, <laughs> we are a little bit more careful than they have been. Corinna, you and I have talked uh, multiple times during the course of this pandemic about how the German government has been doing or how they're managing restrictions and managing the pandemic. I'm wondering if you think that things make more sense now. I mean, is there more flexibility to impose restrictions, remove restrictions with the vaccinations? Has that all changed, you think, for the better? I mean, do you think Germany is in an ideal situation or at least approaching an ideal situation for dealing with not just the variants, but the variety of threats and challenges that emerge in this pandemic? Well, I don't think so. Maybe things are getting a little better, but what I still miss is uh, a sense for prevention because what we have now, for example, is a discussion about vaccination mandates. And um, this is crucial because people keep in mind where well, things might be that bad, so we don't need vaccination anymore at all. And um, so the political discussion, the things politicians do in the Bundestag has an impact on society. And we might realize this at the moment, but we'll see what happens in autumn, for example. And the pandemic is not over at all. So there must be pragmatism as far as the society is concerned, like we both just said that there has to be a compromise. But whenever politicians react like, well, now things are quite fine, so we don't have to do anymore, this is very, very difficult. And I see this very critical because they seem to not have to realize that prevention is everything. So it is very important to look forward and to say, well, now it's okay. Now it's better, maybe incidences are going down now, and so things change to a better way. But we have to keep in mind this might be different sometime ahead. And as Kai said, you can't really predict what will happen with the virus evolution. Sometimes we talk too bad about German politics, me as well, including me, because we are very we criticize a lot on German politics on the pandemic. And if you look, compare it in a global way, we're still doing quite well. But the direction in what the politics is running hasn't changed at all. Kai, what about boosters? Do you think we're going to need another booster? Most of us have gotten the third vaccine or the booster shot. But will this last? This depends on two things. Of course, it depends both on how the virus evolves and it depends on how immunity you know, wanes over time. In the current situation, I do think that probably we're going to see some kind of booster campaign again. Um, we do know that even with three shots, there is a waning of immunity. The question is, how fast does it wane? And like I said, if you get a variant that is, you know, that has a certain immune escape, then the question is how well the vaccine protects against that new variant. I think just like with the vaccine mandate, one of the questions is going to have to be, what exactly does it look like? It's not exactly a black and white question. I mean, you can imagine, you know, having certain groups of people that are at high risk get a booster shot, just like you could have a vaccine mandate for certain groups of people. I think these are things that really we're just starting to to get the kind of data on this that we need to figure this out. I hope we have a little bit of time for that. But certainly in the current situation, we need to be prepared to do something like this in autumn. And I think uh, hopefully that German politicians, you know, are thinking about this and, and 
looking for the data to make these decisions. Do you think we're going to have to start looking at this, though, Kai, as a flu vaccine? For example, we get a flu vaccine once a year. It's not mandated, but many people, especially as you get older, do it. And it's not even that effective necessarily. But again, people do it. I mean, is this what's going to happen with COVID? Yeah, I mean, that comparison comes up a lot, of course. I think one thing that's important to remember is that this is a virus that we've only you know, had in the world for a little bit more than two years. And I think the, the kind of evolutionary dynamics you see in a, in a novel virus aren't the same that we see in the flu, which has been circulating for decades. So it is possible, for instance, that the evolution slows down over time. Of course, that also depends on how much infection there is in the world. At the moment, we just have these enormous numbers of infections. And with every infection, the virus does get a chance to evolve, of course. So you know, maybe in the long run, that won't be necessary. We really don't have a good understanding of how vaccine immunity against the coronavirus stacks up over time. We don't have a good understanding yet of how this virus changes over time. So I wouldn't want to make a prediction there. I think it is absolutely possible that certain groups of people are going to be asked to to get a vaccine every year. But we're still talking about the first generation of vaccines. That's the other thing you have to remember. And I'm still hopeful that we will, in the coming years, have vaccines that give us a different type of immunity and that hopefully mean that we don't have to revaccinate and booster again and again. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll talk more about what's happening with vaccines, as well as the impact Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine are having on the pandemic. Stay tuned. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. The Germany Experience Podcast, where foreigners share their experiences of living in Germany. Supermarkets here drive me insane. But I just said, what are you staring at? No, stop it. Stop it. She's crying. (laughs) There was a shepherd leading a flock of sheep down the street. (laughs) And they give us some advice. Find ways to stay connected to home. Learn how to drive through the roadworks. If you really want to connect with people, learning the language is the key to that. The Germany Experience Podcast. Life in Germany through the eyes of outsiders. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. 
I'm Soraya Sirhadi Nelson, and I'm joined by correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt of the magazine Science and Colina Hennig of German public broadcaster NDR's weekly podcast, The Coronavirus Update. We're talking Turkey about what's happening with COVID-19 more than two years after it began. And I want to ask you a little bit more about vaccines, which we were talking about before the break. Corinna, where does the vaccine acceptance for adolescents and children fare at this point? I mean, is this something that parents and that the government are pursuing? Or is there concern, especially because some studies show that the immunity is wearing off? I mean, that the vaccines are not having the same effect on children as they do with adults. Yes, they're not having the same effect on um, preventing infection, but it's all about severe illness as well, I think. So children don't get very ill in general from COVID-19, but still there are cases where parents especially are concerned. And this is important because we had a lot of uh, other diseases in history where people used to vaccinate their children with a lot lesser risk for severe disease. So I don't understand it really that there are a lot of people, especially people in the the medical sector, who discuss this vaccine for children because there is a very, very low risk or almost no risk for very young children from the vaccine, but still from COVID-19 there is a risk. So this is also a problem of vaccination campaign in Germany, of information, of communication about the vaccine, because the acceptance is lower than it should be, because um, a lot of people doubt the vaccination um, who are not anti-vaxxers normally, who had vaccinated their children against every other disease we have. So, yes, I think uh, people are very concerned, but still it's very difficult for them to sort out which information is important and which is not. And still, we're not talking anymore about the vaccines preventing infection in the whole population. So this is not why people should vaccinate their children. Um, Yes, it is waning very fast, and maybe it is waning faster in children than in adults and in younger children especially, but uh, it still prevents severe disease. And so um, we should focus on this, I think, for the vaccination campaign. Kai, is this vaccine different for children than other vaccines children get? I mean, there obviously are a lot of very many common vaccines if not medically different, is there a difference, you think, in the way parents, German parents, are thinking about it? From the beginning, one of the issues with the communication about the vaccines, of course, has been that these are new vaccines um, against a new virus that have been developed in a shorter time period than we're used to. Thank God they have been, but that's certainly been a, a, an issue with communication, I think. Parents, certainly friends of mine with little kids, the risk-benefit calculations have been very different for themselves or their parents and then for their kids. And I understand that to some extent. I mean, it is a fact that the risk is, like Corinna said, a lot lower. The risk of severe disease is a lot lower in kids. It's not zero. um, And that's why we're talking about these vaccines at all. Um, But it is lower. And so we also know that there's certain psychological mechanisms that play a role. So, for instance, we know that when a kid gets a disease because the parent didn't vaccinate it or the kid gets a disease because the parent vaccinated it, so gets a side effect of a vaccine, that these don't have the same effect on the parent. That actually kind of the psychological burden of feeling you gave the kid a vaccine and it had a side effect is a lot higher than if it 
has a disease because you neglected to uh, vaccinate it. So these kinds of psychological mechanisms play a role, I think. And that's why these are always the hardest debates to have about vaccinating kids. And then when you have a disease that is a lot less risky in kids than it is in older adults, then of course, that's always going to be an issue. So I'm not surprised that we're having these debates. Um, I, I think it's it, it was to be expected. I'm a little bit surprised at how badly we've done in communicating the benefits of this. So that hasn't gotten very much better over the last two years. No, it really hasn't, I think. It's, from the beginning, the communication about this has been one of my biggest gripes. And I think people really tend to think of a pandemic in terms of these kind of hard science things like the the, the objects, the vaccine and, and the therapy and the, the hospital beds. But so much of it is communicating to people and... That's just something that I think we've neglected also because in a lot of rich countries like Germany, the need to do this, you know, this kind of these core public health things like asking people to quarantine. And we just haven't had the experience of having to do that in a very long time. And so we don't have the capacities, I think. And very often we don't have the skills. Well, let me ask you both what stage we're at in this pandemic. I mean, I as a journalist who's covered this as a citizen who's had vaccines and and who has obviously, like everybody else, lived through this for the last two years, kind of can't help but feeling that we're approaching the end of it, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that Omicron, even though it ended up infecting so many people, it wasn't as bad as we expected. I mean, when I got it, I certainly didn't feel as sick as I thought I might get uh, with the disease. So are we at the end? I mean, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there herd immunity? Or should we be preparing ourselves for another onslaught when the weather turns cold again? And Corinna, you can start. I think, yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel, um, maybe mainly because we know a lot more than in the beginning of the pandemic, of course. But there's still a long, long way to go. It's a very long end we have to face now, I think. And there's still some things going up and down and we should face this and we should be realistic on this. And then we could prepare a little better than we did before because it's not only about psychological mechanisms, it's also about knowledge, I think. And this is... Um, yes, maybe this is Kai's and my theme, my favorite theme about this all, because we are journalists, but it's all about information and communication. So maybe this is a new phase of the pandemic because we have a chance now, now that a lot of people are vaccinated. We have a chance now to address this uh, from a new point of view. But what we should keep in mind is that there's a selection bias uh, on the opinion of people because people working in the hospital they fa have to face this disease burden every day and a lot of people don't at the moment because they experience they got vaccinated three times and now maybe they got infected with Omicron myself did for example and it was quite easy to to stand this because it was just like a very mild infection but it's not the reality we have for everybody so I think we should deal with this very openly and in a pragmatic way. So we should just say it's not the end, but maybe it's the beginning of the end. And uh, we should go this way together, but not in, in the feeling that this is the end of the way. It's, it's, a, it's a new kind of way, maybe, into the end. <laughs> Do you agree, Kai? I mean, is it going to be an endemic this year rather than a pandemic? I think maybe let me tackle the, the herd immunity question because, again, so much of this has to do with expectations and communication. And I think we collectively made a mistake early on by you know, being very 
positive when we saw the first results from the first vaccines. And there was this idea that, okay, they're not only protecting from severe disease, they're also protecting from transmission, from infection. And so this idea that we maybe really could reach herd immunity came up. I think we know now that that's not a very realistic possibility with the current vaccines we have simply because immunity wanes over time. It's not great against some of the variants in terms of preventing infection. And so real herd immunity, the idea that if enough people are vaccinated in a population that even the unvaccinated ones can't get it anymore because transmission simply ceases because the virus is so unlikely to find someone who's susceptible, that's really not in the cards at the moment. Again, we might get better vaccines, you know, especially vaccines that give you mucosal immunity and maybe vaccines that give you longer lasting immunity against against infection. Those might be able to achieve that. For now, we are in a phase where we could be way worse off. We have these vaccines that protect against severe disease. We need to make sure that more people get that protection. But the virus is still going to be there. Because we don't, we, because we can't reach herd immunity, it means that transmission isn't just going to stop uh, without us doing something to stop it. And so we're going to be for maybe a very long time in the situation of having to adapt our measures constantly to see, depending on what variant there is, how big the burden of disease is in the population, to maybe you know reduce the level of infection again. Because that is, for now, the only way we have to really reduce infection a lot. We, we need to always go back to the beginning of this and remember how bad this was and how bad it could have been. And if you compare it to that, then we are already at the you know the lighter end of the tunnel. But we're still in the tunnel and it's we don't know how long it's really going to be. And we haven't done everything we can to make it as short as possible, I think. And, and that's the real frustration. I'm, I'm sure that Corinna feels, um, feels the same. You know, that's the real frustration with all of this is that some of it is up to us and, and we really haven't done a great job sometimes of shortening this. So let's talk about the impact of another world-shattering event, and that is Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, which has led to many hundreds of thousands of people fleeing into the EU. But they're coming across without anybody checking if they've had antigen tests or if they've been immunized, if they're wearing a mask. And I'm wondering, when you have hundreds of thousands of people coming in who we don't know their status, and they're going to be distributed within different countries in the EU, especially uh, Germany, what happens? I mean, does that create a risk of having another surge or new variants? I mean, what is the medical danger of that sort of uncontrolled entry? You know, I, I think we have to be realistic here. And compared to all the, the fallout from this war in the Ukraine, you know, this is the one that I maybe worry about the least. We know that the vaccination rate in the Ukraine wasn't very high. I mean, in general, in Eastern Europe, it hasn't been um, very high. So yes, there's a likelihood that we will see an influx of more people who are unvaccinated. But to be honest, that's something that we know how to deal with. I mean, in general, when we and we had the same discussion, um, you know, with refugees years ago in in Germany, when we had an influx and we try to give them the medical care, and that includes giving them vaccines, not just against COVID nineteen, but also other ones that people maybe haven't gotten. So I don't see that as a big issue. This is I think, again, where it comes down to communication. I mean, in general, we've not been very good in Germany in reaching, you know, groups of people that, you know, that are sometimes termed hard to reach, but it's really a question of how much effort you put into it. And refugees, of course, are a group like that. I mean, they might be hard to track sometimes where they are, but that's exactly the kind of people that need our protection even more and that we should put a lot of effort into reaching. 
And so I see it more as a kind of one more dimension of how we should be responding to this humanitarian crisis to make sure that we give the kind of medical attention to these refugees that they need. And that includes the vaccine, but it's pretty sure that that's not the most important thing that they need right now. Kai brings up a really good point about the fact that this is a humanitarian crisis and perhaps checking people's vaccination cards is not really the top priority when you're trying to save people's lives. But does it make it harder, though, from the other side for people who do come here under other circumstances to be required to show the kind of proof that they've had to show? Uh, For example, you're not supposed to come to Germany if you don't have a vaccine from the United States. How does that work? I mean, is it going to become difficult to enforce that or to make those sorts of requirements if it's not being done for hundreds of thousands of people who are coming from Ukraine? I think I agree with Kai. I think uh, I like the idea um, of um, considering this as a chance for German politics, for example, and for us media people, um, how to address people who don't get reached by information very often, because this is uh, something that was a big mistake in the pandemic. And now we have a lot of people coming from the Ukraine to us, and they still have to um, get reached by our information campaign, for example. And I think we have to learn to live with risks as well. Um, from a new point of view because life is not black and white and this is important. It's a humanitarian crisis and then it's important to welcome these people without any more further questions and then all our pandemic concerns have to step back for the moment. And I think we should keep in mind we still have the masks. We have masks that work a lot against transmission. So um, it's not only about uh, vaccine passes and tests and everything. So when we welcome people and they come here and we don't know a lot about their vaccine status and whatever. So when we uh, check them in in some some room inside, we still could uh, have our mask. We could give them FFP2 masks and this would prevent a lot of transmission. And so this is not the time for fearing things from these people, I think. So. So maybe it's a a humanitarian chance and this will bear some other chances for the communication as well. Well, you bring up a good point about learning to live with the risk and not being fearful. Kai, do you think that is a message that the government has to do a better job of imparting? Because right now, one could argue or at least the opponents of vaccination and and masking and that sort of thing would argue that this is a fear campaign, that the government has overreached with its approach to protecting people from the coronavirus and that, in fact, you know, that they are engaging in fear. It's a very difficult question because, again, that's about finding a middle ground and compromise, right? The situation early on in the pandemic was certainly one where fear was a rational response. And we did a lot of things in this country and in other countries that we you know, thought weren't possible or would never do. And we did it for good reasons. And that was that it wasn't just about individual risk. It was about a societal risk. It was, it was about the risk that the healthcare system would collapse. Um, we are increasingly coming out of a situation where that is a likely risk, I think. And that does change how I think about this pandemic. Um, It does change for me, for instance, also the calculus about vaccine mandates and all of these things. But this is not black and white. It's a very, very difficult thing to decide. And you always have to remember that you're lumping together a lot of people with very different risks. And I just wish, like in all of this, if we could have a little bit more 
empathy and humility. It's just like people are so sure that whatever they feel or think and whatever their risk calculus is, that that kind of applies to everyone. But that's simply not the case. And so I think what the government needs to do a better job of is kind of communicating this kind of collective goal to people and, and explaining better to people what the different risks are and why we need to take care of vulnerable people as well and how we're going to do that. And I think that is, you know, a really big test for the current government for the future is whether we manage to somehow do that and communicate that or whether at some point we just start to ignore this and pretend it's over, which I think would be a shame. It, it would be in some ways also, you know, a defeat of our humanity in some ways, I think. Well, let me wrap up by asking each of you one question about what you think the biggest lesson learned is from this pandemic or the one that stands out for you. I understand there's several, but if there's one in particular, Kai, I'm going to let you go first and then we'll wrap up with Corinna. Yeah, I'll be very pessimistic here, but I, like, if I'm honest, uh, this is very meta, but the biggest lesson I think we've learned is that we're really bad at learning lessons. I mean, and it, you know, it doesn't matter whether that's from neighboring countries or from the past or from science or from any of these things. I'm really surprised sometimes how we always have to be in the situation ourselves before we really manage to grasp it and then, and then react to it. And so I think one of the things that we need to do when we're preparing for the next pandemic is to have mechanisms that make that easier, that make it easier to take the decisions that we need to take when this kind of thing happens. And that also includes for me, by the way, um, you know, a more equitable distribution of vaccines, which is the other thing that we're always reacting when we see the risk ourselves and then we're reacting in a, in a very selfish way in a way. And so, yeah, the, these two things probably for me are ones that we need to address in terms of the global pandemic architecture, really. We need to have bodies that, that make sure that these things work better next time. But that's by no means guaranteed. Corinna, what about you? What is the biggest thing that stands out for you uh, in terms of lessons learned? I would like to address something that's concerning how we live together, because Kai said empathy, for example. In Germany, we're very good at blaming people. Someone's guilty and um, we're all about thinking in black and white. That's what we said before. For example, facing a risk does not mean you don't have to avoid it. You have to avoid it. You deny the risk. There's something in between. It's gray. It's not black and white. And for example, German people, if something is allowed, then they tend to do it. If it's forbidden, they would never, never, never do anything else that's um, because they say it's it's forbidden. Here's some you have this uh, white and red and white um, thing you have at construction work where you can't uh, pass. So th this is a joke we make with our friends a lot of times when there's something um, you can't go that way because there's something in your way in Germany because there's construction work. Even if there's nobody on the street, people would never pass because they are Germans. They say authority says this is forbidden, so I can't do this. And on the other hand, this is allowed, so I have to do this. And this is how people deal with uh, pandemic measures um, the whole time. I would wish they could live more self-responsible with a lot of empathy um, for the others and think themselves into the situation of the others. That's what I said about uh, healthcare people working in the healthcare sector. And we don't keep in mind that for them, it's still a very, very huge burden they have to live with for a long time with COVID, with the coronavirus. So I think it's about taking each other more serious. And this is, for example, for 
politics towards the population as well, because this is tackling the information um, subject again. So learning to live with each other in a better way is what we should learn from the pandemic, I think. That's Corinna Hennig of NDR's weekly podcast, The Coronavirus Update. And joining me here in our Berlin studio was correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt, who writes for the magazine Science. Thanks to both of you for sharing your expertise today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for me. And thank you for listening to Common Ground. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali. And our intern is Abigail Meginson. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.